Mr. Vice-Chancellor, ladies and gentlemen. To speak about the 18th century in Germany seems appropriate for a new Taylor professor. The age of Goethe, or, as it's more recently been called, the age of aesthetic humanism, is, above all others, the period in which Germany enriched the world with literature, philosophy, history, and music. At a time when some departments of German, even in distinguished British universities, have given up teaching any literature before the 20th century, it's necessary to support the study of earlier periods, including the literature of the Middle Ages and the early modern period, which, was, which are well established in Oxford, but still vulnerable every time a specialist in one of those areas retires. We also have to worry in case even the study of the 18th century comes under threat. The age of Goethe is also the period in which my predecessors did much or even all of the scholarly work. My immediate predecessor, Manfred Engel, though best known for his work on Kafka and Rilke, is also the author of an immense study of the 18th century German novel, the first of an intended two volumes. His predecessor, Jim Reed, is a leading authority, not only on Thomas Mann, but also on Goethe and Schiller, and the author of a characteristically trenchant account of the German Enlightenment under the title Mehr Licht in Deutschland, More Light in Germany. His predecessor, the incomparable Siegbert Praver, whose graduate seminar I was fortunate enough to attend, has written about everything, a fortiori therefore, also the 18th century, including a paper, Werther's People, Reflections on Literary, port literary Portraiture, which I heard him give many years ago in this room. With his predecessor, Ernest Stahl, my only connection is that I once lived in the same road as he did, but he was by then very old and we never met. He published studies of Schiller and Kleist, and before him, James Boyd, with his notes on Goethe's poems, earned the gratitude of many students, especially, I fear, lazy students. The first Taylor professor, Hermann Georg Fiedler, who held the chair from 1907 to 1937, and whose bust you walked past before coming into this room, lived in the days before copious publication was expected, but he published a book called Textual Studies of Goethe's Faust, which would be recommended to anyone inclined to dismiss textual criticism as uninteresting. Before the First World War, Fiedler was tutor to the Prince of Wales, an office to which I don't aspire. <laughs> but this, and this brought him into contact with leading political figures, including Arthur Balfour, the last British Prime Minister to be an intellectual, with whom he later worked to combat anti-German feeling during the First World War. Fiedler also reached out to a wider public and achieved impact by editing the Oxford books of German verse and of German prose. As this example shows, Oxford academics, far from living in ivory towers, were then and are now energetic in reaching out beyond academia to share their life's work with a wider public. Before I embark on my main theme, I must say a few words of clarification. First, in case there are any Freemasons or Jesuits in the audience, they won't need to put their hands over their ears at any point. 
I was talking mainly about imagined Freemasons and Jesuits, especially as they were imagined by people who attributed conspiratorial intentions to them. I can quite see that some of my best friends are Jesuits, but the Jesuits I have met have been learned and also liberal-minded in theological matters. It may be that some of my best friends are Freemasons, but they haven't told me. <laughs> Second, when I speak of Germany, I use the word in the 18th century sense, which enabled Friedrich Nicolai, in his great travel book of the 1780s, to describe Vienna as the largest city in Germany. Germany meant the territory of the still barely extant Holy Roman Empire, together with the fringes where a German minority dominated the population speaking Czech, Polish or Romanian. Much of my own research has been on Austria and on its culturally mixed fringes, and I'll draw on my own work in what follows. One of the many advantages of studying the Enlightenment is that it brings together various national literatures and also scholars working in many different fields. Since I joined the steering committee of the Besterman Centre for the Enlightenment, I've learned to appreciate afresh the multidisciplinarity which this study encourages, and also the superb resources for the study of the Enlightenment, which are available in Oxford. I have, in the past, spent an enjoyable time delving into the astonishing collection of pamphlets from the Berlin Enlightenment, housed in the Bodleian, and more recently, spent part of the summer working on Voltaire's narrative poems amid the wonderful holdings of the Voltaire Room in the Tillorian. A few yards from here, I'd like once again to record gratitude to both institutions. In the study of the Enlightenment, the work of Jonathan Israel is now indispensable, or, if you like it less than I do, unavoidable. His three volumes, Radical Enlightenment, Enlightenment Contested, and Democratic Enlightenment, massive both in the learning and the physical bulk, they take up from six and a half inches of shelf space, represent for the present generation a challenging synthesis more than comparable to the account of the Enlightenment offered by Peter Gay almost half a century ago. Israel stands up for the Enlightenment, maintaining that it gave rise to the values of democracy, equality, toleration, individual freedom and sexual emancipation, which, though imperfectly realised, are the core of Western modernity. His robust defence of the Enlightenment is heartening at a time when it's been widely denounced as authoritarian, hyper-rational, Eurocentric and misogynistic. The caricature of the Enlightenment, presented by Horkheimer and Adorno in Dialectic of Enlightenment, and the chimerical notion of a single monolithic Enlightenment project, have been taken too seriously by present-day thinkers such as Alistair MacIntyre and John Gray. It's important to affirm with Israel that the values of human rights and intellectual freedom, which we treasure, though they're under constant threat, are a legacy from the Enlightenment which we undervalue at our peril. Jonathan Israel also performs a valuable service in continuing to regard the Enlightenment as a unitary, albeit diverse, movement, and thus resisting the tendency to fragment the Enlightenment into various national Enlightenments, as John Pocock does, for example, in talking about the Enlightenments of Edward Gibbon. Israel describes how the institutions underpinning the Republic of Letters made Western and Central Europe a single intellectual space, thanks to erudite journals, 
universal libraries, encyclopedias, newspapers, and coffee houses. In his third and most readable volume, published this summer, this continent-wide perspective at last becomes global, stretching from the Enlightenment in Peru to the far-from-enlightened policies pursued in the Dutch East Indies, which were reprehended by both Adam Smith and by the, by the Abbe Reynal in his multi-author compilation D'Histoire philosophique des deux Indes. However, Israel's distinction between the radical and the moderate enlightenments somewhat takes one aback. In his account, a radical enlightenment, running from Baal to Diderot, struggles against the dominance of the moderate mainstream or conservative enlightenment, represented by Locke, Hume, Voltaire and many others, who both provoke a reactionary counter-enlightenment beginning with Bossuet. Even in their time, Israel maintains, the radicals' advocacy of atheism, toleration, libertinism and equality set the agenda of enlightenment debates, spread among ordinary people and initiated controversies in which the thought of the moderate enlightenment was exposed as a set of half-hearted compromises. It is strange to find Hume and Voltaire dismissed as lukewarm moderates, and we might worry a good deal more than Israel does about the fact that the radical enlightenment culminated in the French Revolution. As Heine wrote in 1832, I cherish the memory of the earlier revolutionary struggles and the heroes who fought them, yet I should not like to live under the rule of such sublime beings. I could not stand being guillotined every day. <laughs> in what follows, I want to qualify this approach and suggest that the moderate enlightenment deserves more credit than Israel allows. Certainly, the protagonists of the enlightenment saw themselves as, and were, engaged in uphill struggle against the forces of darkness and obscurantism, and certainly, broad categories like those Israel offers are indispensable in giving a rough shape to a huge and otherwise unmanageable phenomenon. But although in a bird's eye view the battle lines may seem distinct, when we, when we get closer to the ground we shall find a surprising amount of overlap between the two sides, or indeed the three sides. We'll also find it dangerous to imagine oneself as engaged in a black and white struggle, where one tends to assume the features of one's antagonist. As Nietzsche says, he who fights too long against monsters becomes a monster himself. From the perspective of my favourite hunting ground, the Austrian Enlightenment, in any case, the distinction between radicals and moderates becomes more difficult to maintain. One hardly expects emperors to be radicals. Yet, when Joseph II became sole ruler of the Austrian Empire, on the death of his mother and co-ruler, Maria Theresia, in 1780, he rapidly instituted a set of measures which were highly radical. Toleration was granted to Protestants and Jews. Censorship was almost entirely abolished. The church was reorganised. Pilgrimages and many other activities deemed superstitious were largely forbidden. The contemplative orders of monks and nuns were dissolved and the emperor claimed the right to appoint bishops. These decrees, especially the last, caused such consternation in Rome that in 1782, in 1782 the Pope visited Vienna in order to remonstrate with the emperor. Popes in those days were not such globetrotters as they are now, 
And this was the first visit the Pope had made to the territory of the Holy Roman Empire since 1415. The Council of Trent had been held, with precise calculation, just outside the borders of the empire. Joseph, however, faced down the Pope, who returned to Rome with his mission unaccomplished. What could be more radical than Joseph's conduct? Though admittedly, as Israel points out, his was was exclusively an enlightenment from above. Neither he nor Frederick the Great ever thought of actually empowering their subjects. Enlighteners hoped for a benevolent despot who would take their advice and enforce enlightened policies from above. Voltaire placed such hopes in Frederick the Great, Diderot in Catherine the Great. It must be said that Joseph II had little interest in the philosophes. Although he met many of them, including Buffon, d'Alembert, Grimm and Turgot, in Paris in 1777, it was well known that on his return journey through Switzerland, he passed the gates of Ferney without calling on Voltaire. Even though the latter was expecting him, had arranged a dinner party in his honour, and had placed peasants in the trees to provide an ovation. <laughs> and it may well be that in general, Enlighteners' hopes of obtaining the prince's ear and influencing policy were, as Dan Wilson has argued, more or less fantastic. Lacking such a means of influence, however, Enlighteners were forced to adopt secretive, even conspiratorial, measures. Even the Encyclopédie had to be produced secretly after its publication beyond the seventh volume was forbidden by royal decree in 1759. That was in France. Elsewhere, as in some of the German principalities, freedom of publication was very much more restricted. In 1782, the young Schiller, a subject of the Duke of Württemberg, visited the poet and journalist Schubert, who had emigrated in order to criticise the Duke more freely, but had been enticed onto Württemberg territory and imprisoned without trial for ten years in the fortress of Hohenasberg. The penalties for outspokenness could be very severe. Voltaire and Diderot served time in the Bastille and the fortress of Vincennes, respectively. It was customary to imprison books as well, so a copy of the Encyclopédie was confined in the Bastille. Even in Berlin in the 1780s, the Society dedicated to Enlightenment, the Mittwochgesellschaft or Wednesday Society, required its members to keep the matter discussed there in strict confidence and even to conceal the Society's existence. In the 18th century, therefore, the development of the public sphere often assumed forms that looked conspiratorial. Prominent among these was Freemasonry. Evolving in Britain early in the century, it rapidly spread to the continent. By 1789, there were an estimated 600 lodges in France alone, with between 50,000 and 100,000 members, while in Berlin alone, 43 lodges were founded between 1740 and 1781. In France and Austria, but not in Britain, lodges included female masons. Freemasons performed good works and contributed to the diffusion of culture. A great British spokesman for the radical, for the radical enlightenment, who had escaped Jonathan Israel's notice, Robert Burns, became deputy master of a Masonic lodge in Ayrshire in 1784, and many Masons subscribed to the Edinburgh edition of his poems 
1787. However, Freemasonry was seldom as egalitarian as in Scotland. The entrance fees, the costumes, and the banquets were often too expensive for working people, and a high proportion of the German and Austrian Masons, certainly more than half, were of noble status. Masonry attracted some well-known writers, such as Lessing and Goethe, but only briefly. Many people were as disappointed by it as Peter Bezukhov is in War and Peace. Goethe concluded in a letter that if you only wanted to be rational and benevolent, there was no need to join a secret society. You could practice these virtues just as well at home in your dressing gown. <laughs> Freemasonry flourished especially in Vienna, where a particularly famous lodge was Zur Waren Eintracht, True Harmony. Its Grand Master, Ignaz von Born, is often said to be the original of Sarastro in the Magic Flute. He was a well-known scientist, a mineralogist, and sought to make his lodge into a centre of literary and scientific activity. To underline his versatility, a candidate is mentioning that he is also the author of, an, of a very scurrilous anti-clerical satire, which purported to classify the various monastic orders into species in the manner of Linnaeus, and defined the monk as, quote, an anthropoid, category-wearing, thirsty animal that howls at night. <laughs> the members of Born's Lodge included not only a wide range of talents. For example, the veteran enlightener Josef von Sonnenfels, descendant of a Jewish family, who was famous for, for persuading Maria Theresia to abolish ju uh, judicial torture, the composer Josef Haydn, the sculptor Franz Zauner, whose equestrian statue of Josef II can still be seen on the Josefsplatz in Vienna. It also included women, such as Born's daughter Maria, and an African, Angelo Soliman, who originated what is now South Sudan and had been bought, freed and educated by an Italian nobleman. Even more surprisingly, it included a Benedictine monk with the strange name of Franz Georg Übelacker from the monastery of Petershausen at Constance. Mozart often visited this lodge, but he himself belonged to a different and smaller lodge through Wohltätigkeit, benevolence. Whereas Born's lodge was radical and secular, Mozart's lodge, as Nicholas Till showed in his excellent book Mozart and the Enlightenment, had a more Catholic tone and was devoted specifically to advancing the reform of Catholic practice, which was a major theme of the Austrian Enlightenment. There were, nevertheless, close links between the lodges, and Mozart composed a cantata in honour of Born's scientific achievements, as achievements which was performed as the Maurerfreude, the Mason's Joy, in Born's Lodge in 1785. Elsewhere in Austria, we find clergymen sympathising with Freemasonry, even if they didn't actually join lodges. However, the Mason's activities were not all in accordance with reason and science. Born was fascinated by alchemy and by the search for the Philosopher's Stone. A well-connected and generally reliable British visitor to Vienna in the late 1770s comments with astonishment on, quote, the eagerness and anxiety with which the Philosopher's Stone is at this very time sought after here. I should not venture to assert if I did not know from indisputable authority that at least 3,000 persons are this time occupied in this research within, within the city and suburbs of Vienna, end quote. 
Born and other Masons were also fascinated by the, by the supposed mysteries of the ancient Egyptians, which Born, like many others after him, saw the origins of the law of Moses. The worship of animals, he thought, was a mere facade to keep the ignorant masses happy, for the priesthood preserved the secret of monotheism. Here, we can see the Enlightenment critique of priestcraft, commonly traced back to ancient Egypt, mingled with an awestruck fascination with that same priest priestcraft. That, as I said, is what comes of fighting too long with monsters. Given that Enlighteners had to be cautious and sometimes secretive in pursuing their activities, it's not surprising that they should be particularly suspicious about a body of people who also employed secrecy to pursue goals thought to be diametrically opposite to theirs. The Jesuits were originally a group of students at the University of Paris, centering on Ignatius de Loyola. As the Society of Jesus, dedicated to propagating the Catholic faith through education and missionary work, they were officially founded by a papal bull in 1540. In the 1560s, they assumed the additional task of combating Protestantism. Sinister stories about them soon sprang up. They were said to be organised on the lines of an absolute monarchy or a military regiment, and to use their educational system to brainwash the members into a condition of blind obedience. They were said to be popular as confessors because of their moral laxity and to advocate the assassination of monarchs. They're always imagined as an international body. Young men are taken from a variety of backgrounds and trained as members of a single homogeneous spiritual army. Pascal, in the provincial letters, mocks the Jesuits for being foreigners, making his Jesuit interlocutor reel off a long list of clerical authorities with strange, non-French and increasingly barbarous names. A quote from the translation by Alban Kralsheimer. They are very able and famous men, he said. There is Villa Lobos, Koning, Lamas, um, um, Ashuker, De Alcazer, Dela Cruz, Vera Cruz, Ugolin, Tambourine, Fernandez, Martinez. Here follows a large part of the Madrid telephone directory. <laughs> um, um, Pedreza, Cabreza, Bisbee, Diaz, De Clavazio, Villagut, Adam Amandon, Iribarni Binsfeld, Wolfangi A Forberg, Fostery, Stravesdorf. Oh, Father, I said, quite alarmed, were all these men Christians? <laughs> the fact that Jesuits didn't wear distinctive clothing, unlike members of other religious orders, increased suspicion against them. As was later thought of Jews, they were able to pass without being recognised, and thus to infiltrate the unsuspecting society around them. Charges against Jesuits are assembled by Jean d'Alembert in his article for the Encyclopédie and in his treatise Sur la destruction des Jésuites en France. It was widely believed that the Jesuits put their lax morals and their theory of tyrannicide into practice. They were thought to be behind the murders of William the Silent in 1584 and Henri III of France in 1588. The assassination, the assassination attempts on Henri IV in 1593 and 1594, his successful murder in 1610, and the attempt by Damien to assassinate um, Louis XV in 1757. They were alleged to have murdered two popes, 
and to have killed Cardinal Tournon at Macau in 1709 by poisoning his chocolate. In 1758, an attempt to assassinate the King of Portugal, probably by the jealous husband of his mistress, gave the enlightened minister of Pombal a pretext to crush the Jesuits by implausibly charging them with complicity. In Britain, they allegedly instigated the gunpowder plot in 1605 and the Popish plot in 1678. On the continent, they were blamed for helping to cause the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. Later, in the 19th century, they were blamed for the, for the Swiss Civil War of 1847, the, the Franco-Prussian War, and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> the Jesuits were especially criticised for the conduct in South America in setting up what were known as the Jesuit Reductions. Over a vast area, covering not only modern Paraguay, but much of southern Brazil and northern Argentina, the Jesuits, from 1610 onwards, established settlements for the Indians in order to save them from the forced labour and slavery imposed by the Spanish and Portuguese colonists. In 1750, Spain ceded a large territory to Portugal, including seven Jesuit towns with over 30,000 Indians. All were ordered to move to Spanish territory. Although the Jesuits reluctantly tried to persuade the Indians to obey royal orders, the Indians tried to defend their homes by fighting the combined Spanish and Portuguese forces. They were defeated, and by the end of May 1756, all the seven towns were conquered and occupied. Many strange stories of these events reached Europe. It was widely believed that, far from defending the Indians on humane grounds, the Jesuits held a vast and wealthy empire, with an Indian as its nominal ruler, and that the Jesuits had commanded the Indian army. Voltaire drew on these slanders in chapter 14 of Candide, where the hero arrives in Paraguay among wealthy Jesuits, holding military rank, and has to kiss the Jesuit colonel's spurs when he returns from the parade. In fact, the war was carried on by the Guarani Indians without Jesuit assistance. The Austrian Jesuit chronicle of these events, Martin Doblitzhofer, says the Indians obviously cannot have been led by Jesuits because if they had been, their campaign would have been successful. <laughs> these exciting rumours diverted attention from the Jesuits' real and substantial achievements in linguistics and science. By the 18th century, admittedly, their educational methods were widely considered old-fashioned, and in some sciences they've been overtaken by the um, Benedictines, whose achievements have recently been described by Ulrich Lehner in his book with, with the only apparently oxymoronic title, Enlightened Monks. However, Jesuits con continued to contribute to learning. One example worth commemorating is that of Father Maximilian Hell, who at the age of 35 was placed in charge of the new observatory at the University of Vienna. When astronomers were sent abroad to observe the transit of Venus across the sun in 1769, Captain Cook, as we all know, led an expedition for this purpose to Tahiti, but Father Hell, arguably drawing the short straw, was sent to make his observations on the Arctic island of Vardu. He made the dangerous journey, narrowly avoiding drowning on the Norwegian coast, to the northern extremity of Europe with a companion, another Jesuit, 
who kept a journal of their travels. From this fascinating document, it appears that as they had time in their hands, after building an observatory, they studied the language of the local Laps, or Sami, noticed resemblances to Hungarian, and thus originated the concept of the Finno-Ugric language family. Another Jesuit scientist, Josef von Herbert, also a professor at Vienna, introduced the lightning conductor into Austria. Meanwhile, a Benedictine professor, Dominikus Beck, erected the first lightning conductor in Salzburg. This is more remarkable, because the lightning conductor was a quintessentially enlightened invention, since it rendered harmless the lightning, which pious people thought was God's means of punishing sinners. It is curious to find Jesuits and Benedictines batting on the same side as Benjamin Franklin. After the Jesuits had been expelled from France, Spain, and even Austria, the society was officially dissolved by the Pope in 1773. One might have thought that there was nothing more to worry about. On the contrary, however, Jesuits did not disappear, but became ex-Jesuits, more sinister because invisible. Pamphleteers in Vienna of the 1780s become almost hysterical in denouncing them. The entire globe is full of them, writes one polemicist. The poison flies like a pestilential plague from pole to pole. Now, writes another, they roam throughout the world, without a chief, without temple or altar, like the Hebrews after Vespasian's triumph, but just as devoted to their old system, just as scheming, just as power-hungry, adapting to all circumstances, smooth-tongued, ingratiating, able to make themselves necessary, and greedily yearning after the formal universal dominance. <coughs> the association between Jesuits and Jews suggests one of the themes I want to pursue in future research on conspiracy, namely that anti-Jesuitism provides the template for modern anti-Semitism, which regards the Jews as forming an international conspiracy. In Berlin, Friedrich Nikolai, whose travel book I mentioned earlier, was the most obsessive sniffer out of Jesuits. In the preface to his travel book, he quotes a letter from a friend warning him that Jesuits may murder him for what he said about them. His paranoia made him a figure of fun and earned him a walk-on part in Goethe's Faust Part One as der Steifer Mann, the stiff man, whose constant snuffling explained by his searching for Jesuits. This is all good and fairly clean fun, but here's a caricature of the truth. Some ex-Jesuits retained distinguished positions in ecclesiastical and academic life, such as Johann Michael Zeiler, who was to become Bishop of Regensburg and Germany's most respected Catholic leader. Some of the leading lights of the Austrian Enlightenment had trained as Jesuits, notably the satirist Alois Blumauer, famous for his parody of the Aeneid, which so annoyed Schiller, the ex-Jesuit Karl Leonhard Reinhold became one of the most influential expositors of Kant, by publishing in 1786 a book which explained to the general reader what the critique of pure reason actually meant. Other ex-Jesuits did indeed become powerful reactionaries. Darren McMahon gives a list of such figures in France in his book Enemies of the Enlightenment. Ex-Jesuits, in other words, were diverse, whereas the hostile stereotype imposes uniformity. And some Jesuits 
pursued goals that we now think of as enlightened, while some Freemasons pursued goals that were at best fanciful. The opposition between Jesuits and Freemasons certainly existed in the consciousness of the time, but the aims of the two groups overlapped in ways that the binary construction could not acknowledge. It's an obvious reflection of what you fear is liable to be a projection of aspects of yourself. Freemasons, organised hierarchically, imagine Jesuits as their, as their mirror image, but with far greater power and with malign intentions. I mentioned earlier the hopes of influencing enlightened despots. In forming such aspirations, they were seeking to emulate the influence that the Jesuits were rumoured to have obtained as confessors to princes. Famous examples included Wilhelm Lamor Maini, the confessor of the pious Counter-Reformation Emperor Ferdinand II, whose mere name, when uttered in Schiller's Wallenstein, makes the, protag the protagonist tremble, or the terrifying Michel Letellier, confessor to Louis XIV, who is the subject of a pen portrait by Saint-Simon, memorably analysed by Erich Auerbach in chapter 16 of Mimesis. The mirror relationship between Freemasons and Jesuits was not wholly a matter of imagination. The offshoot of Freemasonry, known as Illuminatism, was founded by Adam Weishaupt, a professor of law at Ingolstadt, who had been educated by Jesuits in Bavaria and was deeply influenced by Jesuit organisation and discipline. The myth of the Illuminati is too large a subject to deal with here. Suffice it to say that their society, though short-lived, not numerous, and largely confined to southern Germany, generated a huge mythology among conservatives, including no less a figure than Edmund Burke, who sought to describe the French Revolution to conspiratorial machinations. However, I don't want to leave the impression that Enlighteners and their antagonists were a kind of odd couple, engaged in futile shadowboxing, as the Freemason Setembrini and the Jesuit Nafta are for much of the Magic Mountain, though there the representative of the Enlightenment does have the moral advantage. The, Enli the Enlightenment was, above all, a creative movement, and its creativity is shown by how its members outgrew Freemasonry. Lessing joined a Masonic Lodge in 1771, but seems to be disappointed by what he found. In 1777, he composed a Socratic dialogue, Ernst und Falk, between an ex-Mason, Falk, and the naive Ernst, who rashly becomes a Mason. Ernst finds, to his disappointment, that his fellow Masons are obsessed with schemes for conjuring up spirits and making gold, and that, of course, may well be true. Falk argues that Freemasonry is not to be identified with membership of a lodge, any more than religion is to be identified with a church. Civil society, he indicates, inevitably fragments into different nations, religions and classes. There's always a need for wise people who can see beyond the boundaries of their particular nation, religion and social class. And the, and the invisible church formed by such people is the essence of Freemasonry. In the 1790s, Herder rewrote Lessing's dialogue and made Falk say 
that what was called an, invis an invisible church, quote, the society of all thinking people throughout the world was actually visible. Since the invention of printing, it had existed as a republic of letters, united by the international dissemination of writing and extended, extending far into the past. So it included Plato and Homer, as well as Bacon and Fenelon. This was one response to the Enlightenment's partly enforced concern with secret societies. Another response was voiced by Wieland, who was not only a great spokesman for the Enlightenment, but one of the funniest writers in a, in a literature which, contrary to popular belief, is rich in humour. In his essay, The Secret of the Cosmopolitan Order, in 1788. A true cosmopolitan, Wieland says, cannot be a member of a, of a secret society, because he aims to benefit all humanity and has no reason to shun the light. Nor do so-called cosmopolitans seek to form a state within a state, an accusation made against the Jesuits in Paraguay and elsewhere. Another plea for visibility comes from Kant, who argues in the appendix to his treatise on Perpetual Peace, 1795, a political discussion should always be public or, as we might say, transparent. He sets up, the, sets up the following principle, I quote, All actions affecting the rights of other human beings are wrong if their maxim is not compatible with their being made public, close quote. From this he draws the conclusion that if rebellion means secret planning, then rebellion even against an unjust ruler, must be wrong. Kant's absolute rejection of rebellion was hard for his contemporaries to accept. One answer comes from the author, which I mean to end this lecture, namely Schiller, whose dramatic work addresses the problems of conspiracy and transparency. Schiller was not a Freemason, and in 1787 he rebuffed an attempt to recruit him to the Illuminati, but almost all his dramas turn on conspiracies or rebellions. He also edited a collection of narratives about historical conspiracies, to which he himself contributed an account of the nobles' conspiracy that helped to begin the Dutch revolt against Spanish rule in the 1560s. This was to develop into one of his historical works, The History of the Revolt of the Netherlands. Schiller was sympathetic both to republicanism and under certain circumstances, to political revolution. He supported the American War of Independence and his goals of establishing humanity's rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In 1783, he even declared that he would emigrate to the United States himself if the revolution there proved successful. This may seem strange in view of Schiller's subsequent rejection of the French Revolution, but... From Schiller's point of view, the American Revolution succeeded because the population that carried it out was already politically mature. In this, it differed from most revolutions, including the French one, which in Schiller's view degenerated into rule by terror because the people were not yet prepared for it, for the historic opportunity. Schiller's dramas are fascinating portrayals of humanity in a state of political immaturity, resorting to conspiracy as a means of accomplishing their ends and realising only too late that, that such means defeat their purposes. In his penultimate play, however, 
the semi-utopian political drama Wilhelm Tell, she represents a model of successful political revolution. It's justified by extreme circumstances, the tyranny of the governors who Austria has imposed on the free cantons of Switzerland. Resistance takes the form, as one of my colleagues has pointed out, not of political machinations behind closed doors, whether statecraft or intrigue, but of a democratic assembly. Representatives of the three forest cantons meet on a secluded meadow. For fear of their oppressive rulers, they meet at night and require a password. As in a classic conspiracy, conspiracy narrative, they swear an oath of loyalty. But they are not the usual small band of conspirators. They use the word conspiracy, but only to distance themselves from it. They are a representative democratic assembly of the speaker, and they take decisions by a majority vote. So Schiller continues the late Enlightenment's concern with transparency by showing a conspiratorial gathering which is actually an exercise in democracy. With this, with, with this example in mind, we might be inclined to radicalize, sorry, to idealize the radical enlightenment a little less than has recently been done and to place more confidence in the mainstream or moderate enlightenment. Thank you very much.